This is the MDRT Podcast. In part two of the three-episode MDRT podcast series about the DOL fiduciary rule, moderator... John Nichols, Chicago, Illinois. Julie McNeely, Spencer, Wisconsin. And representing two countries where extensive regulations are already in place... Simon Gibson from Newmarket in the UK. And... Susan Patterson, Brisbane, Australia. Discuss how businesses adjust in the face of regulation how established advisors can adapt and elevate the profession, and how members can prepare for the rule. The carrier uh, distribution in the United States, because there has been some movement already with two carriers that at least I'm aware of that have made changes to their distribution, and there certainly is a third that I've been exposed to that is making some changes. So the elimination of the advisor, is that a concern? as regulation continues to come out. Absolutely. I know of one company in particular, and I'm not sure what the other one you're referring to, but this is a significant company in the U.S. They happen to be a large multi-line company, which means they sell home, auto, life, retirement accounts. Their agents, their advisors, are both insurance and securities licensed, and they have made this decision to completely pull out of the security side of the business. So they are all these individuals that have gone through the testing and gained the knowledge to serve their clients are now being told they can't even operate in that side of the business any longer. There will be no retirement accounts being sold by this company. And it's a significant company. I happen to know several agents that work for the company. And what concerns me the most is oftentimes they're able to save an individual maybe 50 or $100 a month on their home and auto insurance, for example. And instead of just saying, put that in your pocket and have fun, they're encouraging these individuals to put it in their retirement account. Probably no one has ever suggested that they do that. And I know there are individuals of low or modest income that are now starting to save as a result of some of the work that these agents have done. And they will just no longer have that opportunity to do it. So that's a huge player in the United States that... I think really served that modest saver uh, household and they're just not going to have an opportunity to do so any longer. And Simon, just to touch on, I want to talk about the pros and the cons of regulation. I mean, have you seen within the UK if there's been a bad actor, a bad advisor, has there been implications to that? Have they been removed from the industry or what's to speak to what you've been exposed to in the UK with this regulation. I would pick up first of all on education, John, if, if I can. The educational requirements in the UK have been ramped up over many years and going from probably a time before I advised when there was very little, if any, requirement to having regulated examinations, you had to fit Uh, a certain number of examinations before you're authorised to advise to get what you might call your licence. And I think that's been absolutely right. It has taken away, forgive me using a particular example, but the man who who did electrician or plumber or builder one week and financial advisor the next, I don't think that was a healthy situation, I have to be honest, and and that that could happen in the UK uh, in decades gone past. We now have a, a regulatory system that I think is improving the situation there. We don't have to have degree level qualification quite, but we're moving that way. But it is done through relevant and relative financial services 
examinations and you can choose specialities within that. You've got some base level examinations that you pass and then you can move on to whatever your particular area of speciality is or just pass as many as you can. And for someone who's not a natural exam taker, that's, uh, you know, that's taken a bit more work for me than it has for some of my colleagues. But I think that's very positive. And what it's also done is it has helped to show up those that either weren't capable of doing that and I think capability is important uh, when we're advising people about their their own money and their own futures but also those who perhaps could see the writing on the wall so they may not have been absolutely a bad advisor in, in response to your question but they perhaps were sailing a bit near to the wind in terms of bad advisors the regulations are very tough there are big fines. You can be taken out of the industry. There's no two ways about it. You, you cannot be today, I would suggest, a, a genuinely bad advisor in the UK. They, they don't exist anymore. Clearly, we'll discover one next week, but we didn't know about them. And that up to this point, they haven't shown up. But when they do, they're gone. And is there ongoing training as well? So there's initial training to get into the industry. Is there ongoing so a yearly or, or semi-annual type yes, training? So, so the regulators require what we call continuing professional development, CPD. I guess many listeners would know what that means. And there is a requirement to do that on an ongoing basis, on an annual basis, and to fit a certain uh, period uh, of your year into that. I don't think that's onerous for most advisors. It shouldn't be. Certainly all of all the people in my business don't find that difficult to, to achieve. I would, though, go back to the point about the examinations. It's not training. It is studying. There's got to be proper studying. There's got to be exams taken. They start with multiple choice, but they get much more difficult. They move to case studies. They are proper exams. There is a, a, a profession, and the reason that I don't personally use the term industry is that I see uh, financial services in the UK as a professional and, and I, I know MDRT talks globally about that and we are the premier association of financial services professionals not industrialists and I think that personally that the examination system is overdue where it doesn't already exist. Excellent thank you Simon and so Susan speak to that as far as the training as from an advisor perspective. Yes so in Australia you've had to have an advan- and a diploma of financial services to practice and then we moved it up so at the moment in regulation as far as I know and as I said these regulations are yet to sit before parliament again I think so but my thinking at the moment is what is going to go back before parliament is that by 2019 you have to have an advanced diploma of financial services. But June 2016, you had to have your diploma and been in the industry for five years. You have to have an advanced diploma by 2019, which most people would have. And then by 2000, they've got two dates flowing, either 2021 or 2024, you have to have a degree. So if you're an existing advisor for 10 years, you still have to be at degree level qualification to maintain being an advisor. To what Simon said, and I appreciate that, I think education is a great thing and I think we should embrace that. We do have ongoing education requirements as well. We still need CPD points and we're going to start sitting an annual exam from 2019 as well that we have to pass and if you don't pass, then you can't be an advisor. You get one reset option. Again, this is to go through Parliament, but, but it would seem that both sides of Parliament are keen to have that installed. I do think that it's good and I do think we should embrace education I do have concern about a person who may be very, very good at their job and perhaps isn't good at sitting exams and then that person doesn't get captured in the path forward. And I also have concerns that we're going to have um, people leave the industry and they're going to be looking at those dates now and going, well, I'm just not going to keep doing this going forward. It's wonderful that we're bringing in new talent and it's wonderful that we're opening them up, but I I am concerned at the, the amount of wisdom 
and experience and knowledge that will actually exit the industry. Like I think for the young people to be really good, the best way is to learn from experience and wisdom. It's not just from books, it's from spending time with advisors that have been there the long term. So that's probably my biggest worry. And when you say degreed, at what level? Is that a university Bachelor, level? Yeah, yeah university. university level. Yeah. I look at my staff as they're either advice staff or they're non-advice staff. I have advisors work for me and they are fully qualified. In fact, I'm lucky they're already university degree qualified because they're younger. I've brought them in on internships and I've got others going in on that sort of career path now where we're putting them through internships while they study. But if you're just behind the scenes doing what is very important work, pulling everything together, you never used to have to have any qualifications. It was you were basically, I suppose, whether an insurance or a you know customer service officer or whatever. But depending on the broker dealer group, many of those ask now that those people actually have a diploma. And how about with you, Simon, and with your team? So first of all, the regulation is very straightforward. If you are not qualified, you can't advise. However, we do have people in our team who don't advise but are qualified, and we choose not to give them the final part, which is the licence. So the people who work most directly with me, a couple of those in particular, are very well qualified. They could be advisors. They're not. They're qualified so they understand what's going on so they can do a better job of helping our clients behind me, alongside me, that they're often client-facing. They do not, though, give advice because we haven't taken them to the authorised stage with the regulator. And Susan, so if I'm a new advisor coming into the business in Australia, how do I deal with this regulation or do I not worry about the regulation or where should I focus? Well, I think, I mean, on the good side of everything, if you're a new advisor coming in, that's just the the land as it lay and all you know. And it's not an issue and it probably does pay put a career path forward for a new advisor that is extremely professional. You know, a new advisor will come on and will be basically holding the same professional dignity as an accountant or anybody else that's come out of university. And I think that's a good thing. I think the industry is a professional industry. Well, it's not an industry, it's a profession these days. And when you speak to clients and you think of yourself that way, it really is a, a good thing. So I think people will come through and it's a totally different career path for them to what it was years ago when many of us sort of stumbled into insurance for one reason or another and all for good purposes. I think it will have to be driven that someone specifically wants to come into that field. So it's, in essence, it's elevated the standard... Uh... Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see if it does attract because... If you're me and you want staff, I need to go out and search for people like that now. So we're going to be in the marketplace to start attracting these people and talking to universities and giving universities a thing that, well, okay, here's a career path for people that we probably haven't pushed so much before that, you know, when they've done different degrees. But can I say I was in Hong Kong for the MDRT experience meeting and I sat in on a meeting and they had their advisors there. And it was so interesting because their advisors were saying, you know, when I was at school, when I was 15, all I wanted to do was be a financial advisor. I was just, look, this is something that you do not hear in our younger communities. So what has driven that thought process in Asia and not sort of driven it in Australia or the UK or, or the United States, I don't know. But maybe it's us going forward and showing to people this is a great role and appealing to people in a different circumstance to what we did before. 
from a new advisor perspective, regulation, you know, is it, has uh, this elevated the industry? What are, what are the, some of the positives that, that may have come out of this regulation for a new advisor coming into this profession? I agree with what's just been said in Australia, in the UK, in the US. I can only imagine that if you're a new advisor coming in, you deal with what's put in front of you. And I don't think you have to worry about what's gone before. Uh, Winston Churchill, what podcast would be uh, full without a Winston Churchill quote, said, if we don't learn from history, we don't learn anything. Of course, you need to know where we've been. You need to know where things have gone. But an advisor coming in today is going to deal with what's in front of them today. And I don't have an issue with that at all. Uh, I think it it is the older, more experienced, uh, more wisdom-filled folk that actually potentially have the problem. The positives are numerous. I think knowing what you've got to do, uh, I think there is now a line that's drawn and of course we know that those lines can be shifted but there is a line there is no doubt about a line which perhaps there is elsewhere in the UK we know what you've got to do I do wish that we could elevate the profession to one that people really wanted to join as they were going through school high school university that must happen occasionally I can't honestly tell you I've ever met anybody who has run up to me and hugged me and said I so want to be like you (laughs) maybe that's me but I just don't see that happening however in our business we do take graduates from university and we bring them into our business they work in financial services and some make it and some don't so they are out there I would say there aren't enough of them and and I I couldn't agree more with the comment that was made earlier we've got to learn something in the western world from what's happening in Asia because there is an excitement in Asia about the business that we do that there is very rarely found in the western world and Julie you've traveled to the United States you've been exposed to many many young advisors and what do you see what's your perspective I completely agree with uh, both Susan and Simon. I think as a young advisor coming into this this business, uh, this profession, they have no idea what has been done in the past. And so I think they're ready to devour and and work in in whatever capacity they're they're able to work in and serving their clients. So I really don't see the issue as far as a young advisor living by this new standard that we've we've now uh, been faced where I have concerns is really those senior advisors, those more experienced advisors. In my 20 years in this industry, I certainly know that one of the things you have to do is to be able to change. And and as regulation changes, as laws change, we need to be continuing to adapt our practices. Well, when you've been in the industry for 40 or 50 years, it's harder to adapt because you've gotten very accustomed to the way you've done business. And so I have seen some of those senior advisors leave, which some would say that leaves opportunity for the younger advisor. But we certainly need to do a a better job of attracting the young advisors. But I think they're ready to jump in and devour whatever it takes to be successful in this business. And do you see the possibility of a two-way mentoring? I mean, what what you just mentioned, a a young advisor could actually be mentoring an experienced advisor and vice versa, so a a trade-off there. Yeah, I call it reverse mentoring, actually. So, you know, the senior advisor could mentor the young advisor in the ways of the business, the ways of the profession. The young advisor can mentor the senior advisor on how to adapt to change and and new technologies and I mean I've done it many times with people that they get their first iPhone and they don't quite know how to use it and I can show them all the great technology and you know I think with all of the changes that are happening in regulation and laws there are ways for us to work through this 
and come out the other side feeling successful and still being great advisors for our clients. I, I don't see this necessarily as an obstacle. I see this as potentially an opportunity, and I'm ready to do what I have to do to continue to serve. I have no intention of leaving the industry. Simon, you had a comment on mentoring. One, one line on mentoring, not particularly to do with, with regulation and those changes at all. My experience of mentoring is that the mentor and the mentee both learn. It's a benefit to both in my experience. And yet the regulation may have an opportunity for us to accentuate mentoring. And maybe we should be pressing the accelerator on mentoring and forming mentoring Opportunity. What some more experienced advisors in the UK have chosen not to remain authorised have done is turn themselves in on their business and do exactly that, bring on the people within their business through their own experience. So it's not that they have all been lost by any means. They've perhaps been lost as direct authorised advisors. I certainly know many who are uh, former MDRT members, perhaps uh, still life-qualifying members of MDRT, who are doing just that. So they, they've not been lost at all. They're just doing something a little different. So, Julie, why don't we start with you? What would you suggest a member do in light of this regulation? What's the one, two, or three things that you would suggest? Well, first of all, I think you need to be educated on what the rule means to your practice. So learning as much as you can about it, whether that's through training programs, continuing education. I would anticipate that most carriers, broker-dealers, will have significant training on this. They certainly want to have advisors who are prepared. So watch for that. uh, Read as much as you can about it. But secondly, I think it's really important that you begin now to adjust your practice to potentially be prepared for what's coming as you learn more about it. And that truly, from my perspective, at least in my practice, means looking more toward a fee-based practice. Uh, We've been 100% commission-based for 45 years in our agency, and uh, that just can't continue to, to be the way we operate. Whether my father would be happy with me making this change or not, uh, it is the writings on the wall that we need to t- make those changes. So getting the correct licensing, or maybe your Series 65, so that you can charge a fee for your advice, I think that's a very basic step. If you don't have that, I would suggest that you go out and get it taken care of. And then just continue to be sort of resilient as these rules sort of become clear to us in the next uh, several months to make the changes necessary so that you can continue to serve your clients. I've got three things, John. The first one is is most important. Uh, Do not bury your head in the sand. We had four years' notice of the latest change in the UK, which is the move to fees. And I was speaking to people three years, two years, one year, nine months, six months, and three months out who were saying, don't worry, Simon, it'll change. And you've got to prepare yourself for it. So number two is, is prepare. So if you don't bury your head in your sand, if you look out and say it's going to happen, the next thing is how do I prepare for it? And you've got to look at your business. You've got to look at your clients. Some businesses in the UK have had to look really seriously at the sort of client that they're dealing with to make it work. And that's harsh when you're having to say to people who've been your clients for a long period of time, you can no longer afford to employ me or I can no longer afford to deal with you. And that, that's something that has got to be considered, in, in, and it will have to be considered in some practices, undoubtedly. The third thing uh, is, a, is a real positive, and, and certainly our business got huge amounts out of this over the years from, from various changes in regulation, not only the most recent ones. And that is to think about what we do, really think hard about what we do for a client, write it down, and turn it into what we market as what we do. Because if our client simply sees us as somebody who collects a piece of paper and a cheque or an electronic payment to invest a million dollars, the value is very difficult 
to establish. They just see a cost. If we can show them what the value is, what our experience is. In, our, in the UK, we talk about the experience that we have. We talk about how long we've been doing something. We talk about our professional indemnity insurance, which gives them some protection. We talk about uh, not just our experience, but our examinations. We talk about the backup that they've got through our business. We talk about all of the things that we are capable of. We talk about never forgetting that it's their money. All of these things. And then we come to the price, and it's a value, not a cost. I'd say I would anticipate in all instances that change are going to happen. And if I was in a practice in the States at the moment, I would um, sit there and think, if these things all go forward, what is the financial impact to my practice? Because I think it's really good to have your head around the numbers and then start budgeting to, OK, what do I need to do to supplement any sort of financial impact? So we did that over a four-year period because I knew that we were going to suffer $300,000 loss in ongoings. And although we haven't had growth, we've held our own through that period of time, sort of by planning and expecting it and reworking how we do it. The other thing I would say is you probably may not be making as much money along the way, but if you're process-driven and you're really clever about the underlying um, ways you do business in your business, you actually end up with not only a much stronger business, but one that works at a lot more cost-effectively and, again, offsets some of those losses that you have. So really dial down and look at your business. I'd also say jump, don't be pushed. You know, put your finger in the water and, and start charging fees and get used to it in your own time. And that way when you're doing it, you're doing it with a level of comfort. You can choose clients that you're more comfortable with to do it. Start getting it all together so that you're, by the time you're doing it, you are good at it and you're confident about what you're doing. And the only other thing I'd really like to say is obviously all of this is still going on in the United States. I think any advisor from Australia would say now, retrospectively, really stay involved in your industry bodies and organisations and really make sure that you are a voice to be heard because what we say is not only what is best for our industry, it's really protecting the consumer as well and it's really important that we do that. And so, Susan, you've connected up with other members and I don't know, maybe they're a study group or not a study group, but been able to kind of bounce the ideas of how to build out that process within your business? I have, and actually it's it's funny, you all live in the same country, but the easiest time for us all to catch up is when we come to MDRT, and we have MDRT state meetings in Australia as well, and it tends to be at those meetings where you sort of sit there and have the opportunity, let's actually talk about this, and that's probably the time I walk away from other Australians with the best ideas where we share their marketing tools for fee-for-service and I'm doing this and how that's going. So I think when you're in these um, environments, it really is the time to have those conversations and maybe not just with your own country but with other countries. I would add to what's just been said, the process in one's own business is really as good as it can be. And I would say that in my business even today after all the things that we've done. Uh, you have to continue working on that and this is as good an opportunity as any to really look closely internally. The other two things really quickly, I've been a member of a study group for many years, primarily made up of MDRT members, we meet in London. It's a fantastic way of making sure that you are talking uh, through Chatham House rules where, where everything is confidential about your business, about the problems that you have, the successes that you've had and, and at a time like this keeping your uh, so-called competitors close to you is actually a very good thing. Know what everybody else is doing, talk to the people that you trust. And the final thing is the point about experience of charging fees. When I started charging fees, it was 14 years before I had to. 
it turns out. That 14 years experience did me a lot of good. But actually the first three months helped the next three months, helped the next six months, helped the next year, helped the next two years, helped the next four years and so on. If you don't start down this road, it is going to be tougher and tougher. And the later that you do it, the tougher it's going to be. I just wanted to follow up on something Simon said. You know, he, he said that four years is what they had to implement this and don't stick your head in the sand. I think as, as, as U.S. producers, we have essentially 10 months to begin calling ourselves fiduciaries and 16 months to start utilizing the best interest contract if we're going to continue to, to be paid by commission. That is nowhere near four years. And so the, the head in the sand comment, I think, was really uh, an important one to note. Uh, there is not enough time for us to, to, to stop and think about this. And we do need to move quickly. And then I also wanted to follow up on something Susan said, involvement in, in our industry uh, is such a critical thing. One thing I've learned over the last many years is that I, I never viewed myself as a political person, but the more involved I got in our industry, the more political I became, because I knew how quickly federal government, state government, potentially regulatory agencies now could change the way I operate. And the only thing I could do was influence those entities by becoming involved and educating them on what I do on a day-to-day basis. And when you sit down with a legislator, whether that's in Washington, D.C. or in your state capital, they have no idea what you do as a financial advisor every day. And our job is to, to share that with them. So being involved politically doesn't mean that you have to be a political person. It just means that you have to be good at talking about what you do every day and why the regulation can, can negatively impact consumers very quickly. Thank you very much for listening. Check back soon for Episode 3 in our DOL podcast series. If you'd like to subscribe, you can find us on iTunes at MDRT Podcast. See you next time.